hope, aspiration, connection, belonging, culture. These are the stories we tell. Join me as I speak to storytellers from across the world and hear about what inspires them to create the reality they want to live in. I had the opportunity of speaking with Eric Kaysen today. Eric is a longtime Bitcoiner and the author of Crypto Sovereignty, a book that he released earlier this year. Eric talked about his early days in the Occupy Wall Street movement, his discovery of Bitcoin while he was there, and the stories he's been telling ever since then. Just a reminder that my book, 24, the first long-form book of fiction on Bitcoin, is now available for purchase on Amazon. If you're watching this on YouTube, you'll find the link in the video description. And if you're listening on a podcast, you'll find this in the show notes. Eric Kaysen, welcome to the stories we tell. Thank you for having me. Great, great pleasure. And uh, let's see what story we tell. <laughs> so, you know, Eric, we first met briefly in Riga this sum earlier this summer, uh, where I uh, listened to your talk there, which, which I thought was fantastic. And we'll get into that. And then obviously, we've talked a couple of times, uh, met a few other times since then. But uh, going back to Riga, right, I, what, what I noticed, and that was the first time I actually listened to you long form. I know you've been around the Bitcoin circle for quite a while, but that was my first real exposure to the Eric Kaysen. And I what struck me about your talk there was it was a masterfully told story, right? You you re just released your book, Crypto Sovereignty, but the way you teased the theme out in that talk, I, I thought was expertly constructed. Um, and what I did want to talk about is it, it does tell a story, right? It, it tells a story that I found to be very stark. In fact, my wife was there with me in Riga. She watched the talk and she had nightmares for a couple of days <laughs> after that. She, she was like, let's get, let's get out of here. What do we do? Do we have enough guns? Do we, yeah, it was, it, 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 right? So it certainly, it, it struck a, a fairly st a stark theme in my mind. And, and my question to you is, as, as Bitcoiners, I guess for this thing to work, we need as much, of, as large a chunk of the world to be onboarded and on our side uh, to, to make this, you know, true circular economy, but, you know, spending, saving, so on and so forth. Do you think that that type of story that, uh, you know, the stark message, first of all, do you agree with that? But assuming you do, is that the message that draws people in or is there a different approach we could take? Uh, I mean, I'm a big fan. Well, I guess, first of all, like the, the talk that I did on Riga was the development of the technology of architecture, specifically around surveillance and genocide. Uh, so I sort of connected the original development of the panoptic prison and this technique of the gaze and surveilling uh, and like its full evolution all the way up through uh, the 20th century genocides and the Holocaust and the connection of that to like re-education camps and sort of the global open-aired surveillance system that we have that seems uh, to be hell-bent sort of on the same design. Um, I do think it's like quite nightmarish and terrifying. And I think that's the, the true existential angst that gets arise when like you actually realize that <clears throat> the state isn't this like caring entity that like wants to help cultivate life. Like it 
it is a genocidal machine that's hell-bent on ensuring anybody who wants to move outside of the perspective and theorem of the state itself like can't find a method and mode for life um so while that's like a pretty terrifying message uh there's also the dualism of in my opinion not just bitcoin and this is why my book is crypto sovereignty is the the praxis of asymmetric cryptography and the methodologies of organization that we have so bitcoin being the primary but noster being an excellent example of this same sort of tactic being operated uh there's a true saving power in it in my opinion and not just saving sort of in an economic sense but in a very real political sense and i think it's really important uh to focus on as dark as things are and as small as an opportunity that we have as humanity uh th there is a very radical potential uh for like the good news that is bitcoin asymmetric cryptography and what the internet entails and so like i think there's a dualism of uh, communicating the very harsh nihilistic message of what's going on and the hope that these technologies give us for the potential to liberate. But, uh, you know, like my friend Izzy likes to say, like, we are bioelectric nodes and it is our responsibility to sort of convey and communicate these ideas and messages to other people sort of in, in whatever way they're going to be receptive to it in order to kind of get across the message. But more and more, I'm leaning towards uh, like we we need like real organization and education to really help compel and propel people into this ecosystem in a way that eventually has them identify themselves as being Bitcoiners. So. So, you know, Eric, you've been to a few of these conferences and you see the kind of camaraderie and just the warmth and happiness that there is. Right. It's uh, and in my mind that if we can highlight that to uh, the, the outside world and say, look, you feel hopeless. You, I mean, you live in despair for, for the most part, right? But there is this place here where people are happy and we acknowledge what's wrong with the world, right? Uh, but we don't dwell in that. We don't let that consume us. Uh, you, can, you can come over and experience this for yourselves. But do you feel that that sort of message is coming through or it, are, are we still as Bitcoiners in the phase where we're warning of the perils in the existing system and not quite highlighting the beautiful things that are, that are on the other side. Uh, this is actually kind of one of the funny things that uh, sort of strikes at the heart of some of the dualism that's going on. And so I think uh, like as we're meeting here in internet world and like part of the general news sphere that's developing, I think that there tends to be more of a focus on the nihilism, which makes sense that like when we're in our sort of individual states, uh, or even presenting ourselves in an anonymous manner that we focus a bit more on sort of this dark and nihilistic mechanism, which makes sense, you know, like internet people that are anons like need to, they're keeping themselves anon for the very specific reasoning of that nihilism. Uh, and so I think in that environment, it presents itself in that way and why there's such, there's so much more of a heavy dialogue about sort of toxic Bitcoin maximalism on the internet. Uh, but like when you go out and meet people at the conferences it's pretty hilarious that uh yeah there, there's a real warmth and love that's uh much much more greatly communicated sort of in that environment of those communities and from the quality and content of the conversations that it becomes very clear that like this is a, a much larger communal movement that's focused on the real love of what it means to respect the other uh and i think it's very interesting because you know like there's 
a whole series of friends that I have that like I've never actually met in uh, meat space that like when we do meet, we immediately kind of connect and vibe and go deep. Uh, and so like the I'd say the other side of that dualism is like the in person part has like the real heart to it. And it's almost like the the digital means and technologies and what we're building and the actual tools is like the brain of the operation. But it's when we get together in real communal environments and talk and share and build community together. We get the real heart of the whole situation. And I think that dualism operates very well. And how do we tell that story um, to draw people into that, into, into that warmth that we experience? I think a lot of it is encouraging people to really come out and meet people in meat space and understand that like the, there's only so far that you can get with studying on, on the internet or learning from YouTube videos or listening to podcasts and that coming and meeting people and having real conversations and allowing for those dialogues to happen are really important. Uh, and I think particularly for people that feel like maybe they don't fit or maybe they dislike toxic maximalism or, or maybe they just have their own strong opinions. I think you'd be very surprised to see and feel and understand sort of the difference. Um, and then the final component too, in my opinion is uh, like, I'm totally uninterested in the economic conversation at this point in time. And I'm not saying like it isn't an important component, but I just feel quite strongly that it's much more important uh, to focus on those other aspects and to, to be able to sort of share together in what we're really sort of creating and allowing for individuals to have their own conversations and understandings of that. And I think it's a very important aspect that only once people have been and shared in that community do you start to go like, oh, okay, like there's something pretty different going on here. And I think a lot of that's just the ethical signaling that Bitcoin has and in the world of nihilism, like it, you know, it's like a, a light in the dark that attracts everyone towards it. So. You know, it is interesting that you said uh, you're not interested in the economics of it. And I, I tend to agree with that. I feel that way too. And it, it is interesting that for a subject that is supposed to be and that is about money right and about human transactions and economics at its at its core or, or at least the, that's how it appears on the surface and that's what draws folks in initially right you see so many cases of people getting in for that reason and then saying finding a reaching a stage where they're like well yeah that doesn't this I'm here for the for the community. I'm here for the philosophy. I'm here for you know what this means for the world, not the the core economics of that. Did, at what stage did that happen to you? Where where you made that that switch from you know, or did you even come in uh, with, with that economics in mind and then make the switch, or was it always this way for you? Uh, for me personally, it was actually almost always this way. Uh, like the economics were pretty fascinating and I didn't sort of understand how that would, uh, really help develop and change my thinking. Um, you know, it's sort of the, the ironic idea of that. Uh, I've talked before about how I had pretty strong, uh, socialist and Marxist leanings before, uh, and through the development of like studying Austrian economics and coming to an understanding of the problem of statism and fiat money specifically, I was able to, to really draw that stark line in the ground and understand the problem of statism and regulatory capture sort of inside of the economic equation. Um, and so it was a little backwards of that, like I was looking for something like Bitcoin to solve the political problems that I saw applying to money because I had 
I had really found Bitcoin through the Occupy Wall Street movement. And that's when I sort of started studying it. Um, and so for me, there was a real light bulb moment when I was like, oh, like you can escape capital controls using this. It, it's a true peer-to-peer -peer currency that has cryptography behind it. That started to really blow my mind. And as I dove deeper and deeper into it, I sort of realized that uh, like my own concourse and development was sort of backwards and that I came initially for the political and that gave me a greater understanding of the economics, which uh, was very valuable sort of in con converting me from uh, this like far left socialist to just like shoving me off the spectrum into full anarchism and why I sort of developed my own identity around uh, essentially moving past anarcho-communism into just outright crypto anarchism and sort of the, the perspective and development that I see Bitcoin offering for a, a module of political development. So were you in New York uh, as part of the Occupy Wall Street movement? No, I was here on the West Coast. And so Occupy Oakland was something that I participated in quite a bit. Um, and then the next year in 2013, there was uh, like an Occupy national gathering in Philadelphia that I went to, where uh, that's kind of what really broke my back in terms of understanding that <clears throat> uh, like political organizing for protesting and utilizing the freedom of assembly. Like it was, it felt really good, but like it wasn't uh, uh it wasn't a, a strategic application of anything. Like if anything, it was the opposite of that, of that. Uh, I realized that like it was an emotional outpouring that allowed for people to at least connect, but like there was no sort of strategic or tactical development. And that's what I was really alarmed about. So when I saw what Bitcoin could offer and the potentiality behind it, I was very excited to get working on something. Um, in addition to like, I, I was just at a place in my life that I didn't feel really anything had much value or consideration to myself. So when I, I saw the sort of small developments going around, going on around Bitcoin at that time, I was just like, I'm going to hop in and participate wherever and however I can, because this does seem to be pretty important to me. And it's been really awesome watching the sort of bloom come out of that. How strong was the Bitcoin component in occupied that, that must have been early days right a couple of years two three years after bitcoin was there a problem no it was nothing more than a murmur you know and it wasn't it you know it was as poorly understood as it was then as it is now um and i just got lucky that like it was a very random sort of passing conversation where someone was like hey this bitcoin thing seems like it could be a real answer and it's important and that just sort of got the fire started and then I didn't think much about it until I had read uh, that Wired article maybe a few months later and then I had read like something on the forums about somebody uh, circumnavigating capital controls in China using Bitcoin and so all of these things sort of got my brain percolating going like huh like what is this thing and then I started doing my own research uh, and then it was probably late 2012 that like I really sort of had a flash go off and I was like, oh, okay, like this is actually like pretty important and there's like really interesting stuff to do. And then it was probably another year of really studying and diving in uh, before I'd like really gone full crazy about Bitcoin. Why do you think it is, uh, Eric, that uh, the Occupy movement didn't blossom into a Bitcoin movement? Because I, to me, it seems like the genesis of both, right? I mean, Satoshi wrote his white paper. I, obviously, he'd been working on this for a while, but clear references to the 2008 financial collapse and 
um, and so on and so forth it, with with the Bitcoin movement, initial Bitcoin movement. And then you have Occupy, which is a reaction to the 2008 financial crisis and the rampant injustice that we're all aware of. Why, why, why do you think it is that they, there wasn't more of a convergence between the two? I think it was so early and nascent that it was just generally unknown. Um, and frankly, like, I also think it was quite positive because like this was before even WikiLeaks had gotten fully on board with using Bitcoin. And so I think it's really important that if Occupy had latched onto it, that that would have been pretty dangerous for Bitcoin and where it was at in its developmental cycle. Um, and I think it, it's a lot of the same trappings that we see today. Uh, and this is one of the reasons that like I, again, going back to focusing on that sort of uh, education and agitation component is uh, like, I think most people don't understand how or why it solves their problem. And I find talking to uh, liberals and progressives very frustrating just because they're so invested in their own ideological approach to the world that they're not open to the actual possibility that like Bitcoin is actually for them and couldn't help their causes and ideals more so than anything else going on. Um, and essentially like this amount of very deep brainwashing that has gone around isms and what it means to be uh, like what liberalism means and what progressivism means it's an ideological approach that is actually like attached to and metastasized within the state. And I, I think it's a, a huge failing and misservice towards these causes. And like a great example is, is that, uh, you know, like you have a lot of individuals on the far left that are agitating for Palestine right now, uh, which however you feel about it, that like Bitcoin is obviously a huge and valuable asset for Palestinians and their cause and what they're doing. And the fact that there isn't, a much stronger representative of people being like, hey, like Palestinians being exploited by Israel, you should like use this Bitcoin thing and it can like probably help you out greatly. And like the fact that Hamas, when they they came out with their money laundering thing, they only got like $2,000 in Bitcoin. I found shocking and surprising that it was such a low amount of money that had been raised. And so to me, this really indicates much, much more greatly that like they're there's a very deep ideological problem right now that most people don't even understand what any of the isms sort of mean beyond the propaganda that they've been given. Uh, and that's been the, the course of like a very long concourse of intergenerational misunderstandings of these isms specifically to like gut them of their political potential and their organizational practices. So, uh, I, I think, uh, Ultimately, it was a good thing that Occupy didn't latch onto Bitcoin because it was just too small and undeveloped at the time. And I think if there was another movement to happen, uh, like Bitcoin would essentially be the spearhead of it. And I hope at some point in time there will be like an Occupy the Fed movement where people are like, fuck the Fed, stop using their money, refuse to pay taxes, refuse to operate with these people that are using your money for criminal conduct and causes. And like, that's not because we're evil people. It's because like, we actually want to build the fucking roads. Like we actually want to help America in a meaningful way. And right now we have a bunch of treasonous, unconstitutional criminal class that is stealing our money vis-a-vis -vis inflation and taxation. And they're sending that abroad actively to make war against other people that you would probably be friends with if you sat down and had a dialogue with them. So we really need to take responsibility for ourselves and understanding that What's going on, it, in my opinion, is it is a treasonous, collectivized, 
class warfare against all people, all American peoples against their political class. And the parasitic political class has given itself permission to actively steal from people to go make war against others abroad. And I just find that despicable and disgusting. And I think that needs to be the central component of all dialogue about how our economic system is conducted. Why do you think that's happening? Or what, what, why do you think it feels uh, that this, what's happening, you know, with, with the state uh, is more prominent now than let's say 20 years ago, right? I mean, the state as an, as a concept uh, is, is this, I, I, I mean, just going with what, what, what you're saying, right. It's, it's always had this sort of evil uh, pre prelection, right. It's uh, so, but what is it about the state now that, that makes it appear that this is so much worse? It's really technological development and the capacities and the availability of what the state can do vis-a-vis -vis technology. Um, and to me, like part of what happened both after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the development of the internet, and then 9-11 was all sort of part of this concourse of things sort of going horrifically wrong in the same way at like the end of World War II. There was this like huge opportunity to actually like liberalize the full global world order to like uh, work with the Soviet Union in like a thoughtful and meaningful way to like develop society on a whole. But instead, we like fucked all that up and went like full war economy methodology, collapse of the Soviet Union, birth of the internet, there's now this opportunity to create this new globalized collective, as Francis Fukuyama said that, you know, like, it, it was the end of history at that point in time. But the United States, we like totally fucked that up. And instead of allowing for the truth of what like a true liberal global order would become, we developed neoliberalism, which is sort of this uh, guileful, deceitful lie that's sort of built out from liberalism. That's actually like a hidden sort of corporate totalitarianism. And after 9-11, I think they saw that with how the Internet was developing, the growth that was being seen around it, they're like, oh, this is like the thing that we deploy in order to create like a globalized uh consumerist corporate society that's like based on the American module where like we hollow out all people's identities and we replace it with general consumerism and like we can all get wealthy off of the exploitative, exploitative process of doing that. And it was in the alliance that technology companies, corporations and states were able to make together to essentially be like, hey, we can make all of these uh, tools to not only control and brainwash people, but to, to like monitor them all the time and a uh, very brave new world style. Like they're going to like it. They're going to want more of it. Um, and that's very important because like, I, I think there's very little appreciation for how many impressions are put upon us, uh, both through advertising, uh, and through many discrete mechanisms. And this sort of goes back to the isms is that to me, like this is a 1984 style modifications of language. So that like, we literally can't think about alternative structures outside of our current form of politics. And like that, that's a specific mode and means that has been implemented through this sort of technological panopticon. And like one, one of the primary examples that I would cite is that when you talk to people about the difference between uh, politics versus the political, to me, the political like contains the totality of what it means to organize human life. And what it would mean to like dispose of governments entirely and like find some new way to organize with the internet, 
or all sorts of other communal modes of organization. And most people can't even think about that idea. They're like, well, don't we have to like elect somebody first? And like, they don't understand that even the notion of democracy is uh, like, it's a nihilistic lie. Cause like, it's, it's always divided like this in terms of, you know, like uh, we live across the country from each other. Like we can't vote on local issues with each other. We're only allowed to vote on federal issues. Like if we were to take democracy in any sincere and serious way, like shouldn't the totality of what that means be open to all of us? And so to me, I think it, it's really important to be able to continue to try to think in these different ways. And the way that the state has partnered with technology firms to promote what their ideas are as being good and right, you know, that's exactly the, the plan that we saw implemented throughout uh, COVID was essentially this gaslighting that corporations and the state can engage in with one another because the way that the state essentially has them captured and can force their perspective and propaganda onto the people with such power, with such power, with so few people, I really point towards technology as being what's responsible for that. And it's extra ironic that that's also like what has the liberative power to um, like save us from what's going on. Yeah. I, so the desire to build that perfect panopticon has always been there. It's just that the tools became more readily available over the last 20 years or so, especially since 9-11. Exactly. And, and, the, and the pretext too, right? Uh, was there, yeah. And it is interesting, the other point you uh, mentioned, Eric, is this, those same tools uh, can be used by the by the people themselves to defend themselves against the state. Maybe even better in an asymmetric way, right? Especially through cryptography. Yeah, I mean that's really why my book is called Crypto Sovereignty, not Bitcoin Sovereignty, is because uh, like the actual praxis of what asymmetric cryptography offers. Uh, I think it's really important to like remember historically, like these are tools and techniques of war, and not just tools and techniques like this this was the most important technological development that came out of the largest and most globalized war that all of humanity has ever seen. And that like the largest and the most powerful nation state that had ever existed, the United States committed more resources towards the development of creating these powers and technology. Uh, the only thing that, that was, you know, more resources were put towards was the development of the atomic weapon, like the second, great thing that sort of came out of world war ii and so it's really important to understand like these are highly sophisticated military tools that were like never intended to make their way into a general populace uh furthermore like the development of asymmetric cryptography itself uh was like a pretty wild thing that like when it was discovered that there was this new direction in cryptography which was the name of the Defel hyman paper that like it was like oh wow like two individuals can like do a key exchange publicly, like have that secret known. And there's still a methodology that they can create secure communication with each other. And this is why through the seventies and eighties that like cryptography was classified as a munition, like the same class of weaponry that like grenades and missiles are found in and its export in the 1990s was found to be illegal. Thankfully, hardcore cypherpunks like, uh, you know, Chom and Beck and others like actively fought in the first crypto wars to make sure that like we could have access to this technology specifically as Americans. So like that's just to lay a foundation of that, like there's extremely powerful technologies and techniques that were not uh, supposed to really escape from their militarized cage, but they did. 
And now that we have this global internet, um, specifically one that's still remotely free, uh, there is potential to actually like rebuild the internet with cryptography at its heart and its praxis. And if we can do that, there becomes a very new and extremely powerful political vehicle that in my mind, it looks very similar to uh, the revolutionary organization that happened in the early 16th or in the late 16th and early 17th century. That was all like one giant connected thing. Like it's really important to understand that like the American Revolution was the beginning of a revolutionary wave that sort of blasted out to the rest of the world with the the success of Europe, with the success of revolutions that we saw in Europe, but also the South American revolutions as well. And it's really important to see that like, that's all a singular ideological perspective that was connected to counter monarchism. And before this idea of having any sort of representative nature in government seemed almost sort of absurdist in a lot of ways. And so I think Bitcoin really reconnects to that idea and essentially saying, hey, uh, both European and American democracies, like if we're actually democratic things, like we should be able to execute and present our own forms of power and organization, uh, specifically in this very lateralized, globalized way that I think is really important. And I think that's where we're going. You know, like I think as people become aware of the very real political praxis at the heart of both Bitcoin and Nostar and these technologies, there's going to become a much more robust organization towards that and an education. And I hope ultimately some sort of a, a, a political league that is specifically about uh, sort of overcoming nation state politics to implement something totally new and revolutionary that humanity has never seen before. You know, as a practical matter Eric, what does that off-ramp look like, though? Because, I mean, I tend to agree with you uh, on moving to that, you know, fully individualized I mean, anarchy in the, right, in the, anarchy as, as like, you know, not the colloquial definition of anarchy, but as, as we understand it, right, which is, in my mind, anarchy is love, right? It's love for your fellow being and, and just living in harmony with them, uh, transacting voluntarily, so on and so forth. So that, that's the end state. We are where we are today right? I can see us thriving once we're in that end state. Uh, I, I just, I've struggled with this question myself, which is how do we get from where we are today to that end state? What does that off-ramp look like? Well, so I think it's twofold. And I think uh, it's twofold in a very interesting way. Uh, to me, like I'm much more focused on tearing down the contemporary structures because like I don't think we can really see or understand what comes after it without like essentially initiating the burning down of those structures. And I think sort of as it's burning down and collapsing that like certain things will pop up to go into that vacuum. Uh, with that being said, like a flippancy of just like eh, anything sort of naturally pop up. Uh, I think is pretty dangerous. And so like a great example is, is that like, it's pretty clear to me that like Noster has this ribosomal capacity of that, like this is going to be the decentralized format for social media. Is it going to be the best? Is it going to fork? Is it going to change? Absolutely. But that's very similar to Bitcoin. And I think there's going to be a number of other technologies and techniques that come up that way. And then I think the sort of third component is, is that we need I don't know if we need, but like, I think there's going to, and I think it already sort of exists in a pretty unofficial format, but like we need essentially a league or a web of trust amongst uh, people who know and understand this technology and to really start sort of raising the bar with what it means to not only educate and educate for each other with it, but to 
essentially create like an active political league that's like, hey, we utilize these techniques and technologies, not just because it's fun and interesting, but because like we understand the government will shut down your bank account. We understand they are going after your social media. We understand that they are going to try to prevent you from getting on the Internet. And I think all of these things sort of stacked together are going to start feeding back into one another so that each time uh, the state apparatus attacks us individually, we'll see new and different places that we need to develop this technology more robustly. Um, and so great examples are like, I, I think Bitcoiners really need to get on the bandwagon much more towards like utilizing ham radios and understanding how those work and setting up the techniques and technologies to be able to easily route stuff uh, utilizing ham radio technology, uh, but also just sort of the more robust education around what is cryptography? How do we do secure key exchanges? Uh, what are the best methodologies for security? How do we run FOSS software maturely? And I think this whole sort of open source stack, as it develops, I want to see that sort of find itself into a greater political union where like, if you're curious about this stuff, you sort of go to that league and there will be people that are available to sort of teach you about all of this. And furthermore, we'll have our own sort of process of proof of work to where, you know, to to have membership in the league, maybe there's certain achievements that you can sort of prove to other Bitcoiners to show your proof of work so that we don't have to trust each other, but we're verifying with one another that we're actually doing the process and techniques correctly. So the, the, the tools and adoption improve and that, and this allows, you know, people to exit and you get more and more people and they exit and the state diminishes as as a, for all in, for all intents and purposes the effect of the state diminishes because once you are exiting in a larger and larger group i think again one in theory i like this one thing i struggle with is the state's not just going to allow itself to diminish uh without a fight right so the, so when i say what does the off ramp look like that's what i'm trying to understand will it be violent and bloody or can we peacefully achieve this end state um, you know, like, I think it's really determined on the state, whether it's going to be violent or bloody. So that means it probably will be violent and bloody. Um, and in all honesty, like, I think that that's sort of the concourse of human history, right? Like, very few revolutions have been bloodless ones. Uh, while I think there's all the present techniques to keep it bloodless to the extent that we want. I also have this uh, perspective that like, people like myself and others who are like known and active open Bitcoiners, like we're, we're sort of the revolutionary vanguard that's taking on the personal risk of that. Like, yeah, if the state's going to attack people, it's probably going to be us. Uh, and my hope is, is that like all of the anons out there who are operating on the internet using pseudo anonymous or fully anonymous identities will essentially be the counterweight to that struggle. And I hope that they, they would be offering and helpful towards not only trying to liberate us politically, um, but also using us as examples to point out, hey, like this is an actual powerful political vehicle. They're very similar to how WikiLeaks was operating. They're going after people that were educating around this and utilizing these tools and techniques. Um, you know, and the last one is, is that like, I, I'm feeling more and more strongly that like as Americans, uh, we have a very specific and real opportunity to insist that like that, like these are our technologies and our techniques that are for our people. And they're, these are things specifically reserved in our constitution for us. And like our government trying to take those from us or declare them illegal or implement CBDCs, like 
this is all bold-faced unconstitutional and we need a new and radical movement of the political in this country not to elect new people or to try to get some new party in power but something totally new designed actually in my opinion to tear down the federal government entirely like to me the federal government represents an illegal imperialist unconstitutional rogue criminal apparatus that has chosen to make pretty much most of the international community uh free and open to its exploitation and i find it disgusting and despicable and i hope as this escalates like all of these bastards who are part of that structure are going to realize that like their hands are caught in the cookie jar and they will be held responsible they will be publicly put on trial and that through a new application of jurisprudence utilizing the internet directly they will be held accountable to justice um and so my, my great idea for the united states is i want to see an article 5 movement where essentially you have a collective of state-based entities that collectivize themselves to go yeah our federal government's out of control we're going to use article 5 of the united states not only to amend the constitution directly but to actually have a constitutional convention to rewrite the united states constitution on a whole and part of that i think will be the destructuring of the current federal government in order to create some sort of new uh confederated structure that'll be based off of the 50 states and uh, the various territories that generally don't have any rights in the united states is the is this uh an activism um that you're taking upon yourself eric through your writings or are you planning to get more involved in creating this reality or or you're still on the sidelines on this at this point oh man um i mean my my life my life was very interesting um and i love it you know like uh, i've talked with friends a lot about this like i can go off and have my own private life that's going to be pretty wonderful across the board and i'll be quite satisfied sort of in the homeliness that it provides for myself. Uh, but there's always going to be this itching and aching question sort of at the back of my mind about what could we really do? Um, and so to answer that, I guess I'd say like, I, I'm curious to see what will sort of naturally pop up and who will naturally pop up. I, I haven't seen or felt anything. Um, and also like, maybe this goes in a different way. Like maybe, maybe it goes with, with finding a real sort of Bitcoiners or decentralized university where like we get to teach this stuff and have more open and robust discussions. Uh, or maybe it's some sort of European political league with uh, people sort of leading the movement on that front. Um, I do feel pretty confident though, like it's going to naturally come up. Uh, and whenever it does, like I'm, I'm quite interested in, in participating into the fullest extent that I can. But yeah, I oscillate a lot because, uh, you know, choosing to sacrifice one's, you know, pretty wonderful and blessed life to like go participate in something that's like probably not going to be very uh, monetarily or politically rewarding directly. You know, like I, I can't help but think of that. It was something like of the 24 people who like signed the Declaration of Independence, like 19 of them were like bankrupt, killed or driven out of the country like before the end of, or before the start of the, the 19th century, you know. So it's uh, it's pretty hard to face it. But at the same time, like I'm realizing that uh, like at least for, for me, um, I feel pretty strongly that 
our generation of people have it much worse off than our parents. Uh, and I'm very resentful about that. And I can't leave that to my children. And like things are going to get a lot worse if we don't actively fight against these powers. Um, and the other one is, is that like everyone is hungry for this. Like everyone. I, I haven't met a person yet that when you can have an in-depth and nuanced and detailed conversation that they don't readily admit just how fucked up things are. But because of that same technological apparatus and how powerful it is and how, how powerful it is against modes of language and radicalism, most people don't even believe that it's possible to try to change something like this, despite the fact that like we literally have geriatrics in the federal government shitting their pants and having seizures publicly. Like it is so wacky that we're actually in this place that like we have what like an 81 year old man as president trying to run for his second term and like he's constantly forgetting stuff publicly like what the absolute fuck is going on and most people get that on some level but it's just too scary to sort of talk about it publicly or think about how there could be real solutions and to me like trying to connect bitcoin noster and all these technologies into that is really really important this is the dilemma of any Bitcoiner who's crossed a certain threshold in their Bitcoin journey, and especially Bitcoiners with families, right, as, as yourself and as, as myself uh, with, with children, is once you see the truth, you can't unsee it. And if you do nothing, you have to live with yourself. <laughs> you, have, you have to live with that conscience, right, that, that hey, I, I, I know exactly what's wrong. I know that there's a potential way in which I can fix it, but I'm just going, you know, I'm not going to do it because it's just more comfortable or it's too scary to think about what could happen, what could go wrong if I did, right? But it is, uh, uh, you certainly don't seem like someone who's uh, who's stuck in that dilemma. You've made your choice, it seems like. <laughs> well, I think, uh, I think I've forced myself into my choice simply through my speech. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, it's like, look, like stuff stuff isn't going to get better on its own or through contemporary channels. And it's very scary to admit that. Um, but I'd say on the other side of that, like the, what compels this isn't just the, the sort of craziness of it, but it's the very real love and connection that we develop with other Bitcoiners. And that, um, like I see a totally different world that is a real possibility. And it's one of, of not only is it possible that like maybe we could live like with peace and love and harmony, but like maybe people don't have to be hungry. Like maybe, maybe people can have housing for themselves. Like may, maybe there's this whole world where people can actually be provided for economically. And it's not because the state has came to rescue everybody, but it's that we've been freed from the state and that there's a real possibility for people on their own accords and merits to be able to keep what belongs to them and utilize that to truly build something for themselves. And when you get all of the general criticisms that were people freaking out that like you need the state's management of this stuff, I feel very frustrated because like we, there's an entire documented human history of people being able to develop for themselves outside of the purview of the state. Like that's sort of the natural mode of things. And I think today, if we were to do that in this globalized, technologically advanced, developed world, like there would be a second renaissance that not only would get man into space, but would harness and provide us with such abundant energy that like we can 
prevent the environmental catastrophe that's going on, that we could roll back uh, sort of all of the waste and garbage that has been dumped throughout the environment throughout the last 100 years of human history. And we would be able to provide fresh and clean water and sanitation for people everywhere. But like governments aren't going to do that. Like people are going to do that. And people are going to do that with the real technological development and rewards that are going to be provided for them to doing that. Um, and I, I, I just always find it very interesting that uh, this is sort of the infection of statism, whether it's on of a conservative or a liberal thread of that, like people people really think that they're not smart enough to live and organize outside of the state. And I insist that like there is a bigger and better way. The problem is, is that because we've been given this classic way of organizing in this way for so long, like our, our brains have become brittle and fragile towards trying to thinking of any sort of alternatives outside of it. And to me, like that's the only potential that we have to rescue humanity from like the very real crisis that we're in. And the fact of that, you know, between geopolitical conflicts, like we, there's a very real possibility of all biological life on earth being wiped out by states flipping out and nuking each other. And like, that's a very special kind of insanity that I think the whole of humanity has to grasp to and admit to itself that like this, this isn't working having these sociopaths utilize techniques of war and violence to try to keep one another's borders in check. Yeah. Well, and maybe the story, the story to tell is the one that you'd mentioned a little earlier, Eric, which is this thriving abundant world, right? Where uh, people have housing and, and it's because the state is out of the picture and not because of uh, this, anything the state's done. In fact, that as you were saying that, that reminded me of uh, Toma's short film from a couple of years back, Bitcoin is generational wealth, right? It's uh, He paints this picture. Um, of of this thriving abundant world uh, on a Bitcoin standard, but I guess the the, the trick here, the, in in my mind, is how do you you can show folks the, the that end state and say, look, this is where we're headed, but there's some there needs to be something in between that convinces them that the way they get there is not the not the way that they've always assumed, which is th just through a better government. If they just vote in a slightly better government the next time, then we'll, you know, we'll, we'll get to that stage. And I, I'm still trying to think through what is the best way to tell the story where we, we can convince normal folks that that future that we're talking about, this is how you get there. You empower yourself. Not, it's not the state uh, empowering you to do that. Well, I think one of the most interesting ones is that like with uh, this whole movement being so uh, undeveloped and immature at this point in time, because like, you know, Bitcoin's only 15 years old. And in that there's really only been 10 years of actual sort of social development that like it's all very young and nascent. And so I think as Bitcoiners continue to develop, continue to accrue wealth, uh, the cycles continuing to uh, be deflationary and show people what a deflationary money offers and actually having savings increase. I think more and more over time, it's just going to make more and more sense. Um, and I also think that like, there's this very interesting sort of globalized, uh, like wandering of Bitcoiners where it's a bit like the Jews in the desert, sort of like looking for their place, you know? Um, and I think at some point in time, there's going to be a various number of collectives and pretty friendly governmental areas where we're going to see robust development taken on by Bitcoiners because of the friendliness that those governments will take towards Bitcoiners. 
uh, and that's going to kind of be part of what this league is, is that like it'll it'll represent sort of this roving global collective that at any point in time can be like, hey, this government's not friendly to us anymore, but this one is really friendly. And thousands of Bitcoiners will go to that place and they'll develop their business there. They'll start developing economics. They'll, you know, because Bitcoiners on a whole tend to be very uh, alternative thinking and entrepreneurial folks. And so, like, I'm quite confident that through the development that Bitcoiners are going to be implementing, that that's going to serve as a great example. And there's going to be a large and robust economic engine to serve it. Um, because to me, like, this is one of the more interesting things is that, like, I've never been a get everyone on Bitcoin, get everyone on a Bitcoin standard. I just don't think it's going to be possible, unfortunately. But I do think that the economic developments that Bitcoiners are going to create is going to create a lot of sort of tangential wealth that I think will pull up kind of the rest of humanity that isn't necessarily understanding what is going on with this. So um I, I feel really good about the direction where we're going. And uh, you know, frankly, like it's unstoppable because this is all just about a logical form of thought that's chained together. That once certain Bitcoiners have like done enough work, there's a certain threshold that you pass where you go, oh, like the like this is the thing we need to use to change the global economic perspective of all of humanity. And yeah, like I'm gonna participate in this and help build towards it. And it's a very miraculous and powerful thing to sort of see that because I think uh, people really start to understand that like, while economics, in my opinion, isn't uh, the engine of it, it, it's definitely the brain of it, but like the heart of it is love. And that's sort of one of the interesting things of why you see such uh, cooperative relationships between Bitcoin entrepreneurs is because everybody wants everyone else to be successful because having a successful Bitcoin business is good for everybody. And usually there's also sort of an argument of that, like, hey, it's all of us against fiat. And I think that that creates a very powerful collective perspective that I think ultimately will get us to that place where Bitcoin will be readily and openly recognized as its own sort of political force and development. And Bitcoiners are really at the heart of that. Yeah, there was quite a bit there uh, in what you said, Eric. I want to pick up one uh one thing first, which you said at the end, which is this is the beauty of an open network, right? With an open, uh, with an interoperable uh, monetary protocol that's sitting under it. And it, it just makes cooperation so much more uh, favorable than competition, right? Because if, if you win as a Bitcoin company, you help the protocol, which increases the monetary value of the protocol, which increases the monetary value of your competitors as well, which is why you have this this beautiful cooperation and and also the interoperability, right? Because the fact that it's open. But uh, I just want to go back to another thing you said uh, around you know these collectives, global collectives that are moving from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and setting up their businesses there, depending on which one's more favorable. I think we're seeing the early seeds of that. I, I would say there's maybe under 20 Bitcoiners are doing this, but you have the world schoolers, right? They're traveling the world. Um, they set up shop for six months to a year. Maybe it could be in Madeira. It could be in France somewhere. It could be wherever, or Indonesia, right? Wherever it is, they they travel with their entire families, large number of kids, and, um, and, and they try different places out. And it's in, incredibly rich education for the kids as well. Again, breaking out of this state-based indoctrination that happens to children. Is world schooling something you're considering for your kids? 
Uh, I think I'll always kind of have one step in or one foot in and one foot out. Uh, I'm really happy with where I'm at. You know, like yesterday, there are problems with it, particularly on the political front. But like, I feel very strongly that like I live in one of the most beautiful, secure and like naturally open places in the world. Um, And also like my my ex is pretty well settled up to to be here. And like, this is where my kids communities are. Uh, but with that being said, like, you know, I, I travel quite frequently. Uh, I'm very excited about my kids getting a little older so I can bring them with me. Uh, and, and I think that like education on a whole is undergoing a very robust and powerful transformation where, uh, I think like that's going to be part of it is like these collectives of people will meet up, we'll have activities, we'll do things together, go home. There'll be a couple months of sort of homeschooling uh, of exploring those topics together and meeting up back again. But it's very clear to me that like we're we're on the precipice of a total change about our forms of life. And I mean, the 20th century was really defined by this idea of work as a nine to five, you're tethered to a place, you go in and out of there. And now that remote work as a possibility and that the internet creates a 24 seven work environment. I think people are free to go anywhere and do anything that they want. Um, so like if people are available for it, yeah, like, I think it's an amazing and awesome thing. I'll probably explore it to some extent with my kids. But uh, I really love having like a home base that's m- my place. Uh, like, I live really close to where I grew up. I know a lot of people in my community. So so for me, like, that's also one of the reasons why people are like, you got to get out of California right now before it all collapses. They're like, totally right on a number of fronts. But also, uh, like, I'm not going to abandon my people to the communist dystopia that it's becoming. Like, I, I I, think we have to fight this. And to me, like, that's also sort of one of my greater political ideals is that, like, if we can sort of get this revolutionary energy into the United States, like, I think fracturing states out into new political entities will have huge potential. Uh, and I'd very much like to see that for my community, because I think a lot more people cease from a perspective that I do than uh, sort of the much more larger urbanized California. So, um, yeah, I think it's a really great opportunity. It's just not one that's really going to present itself for me at this point, at least. No, that makes sense, Eric. So last question for you before we leave, um, before we wrap up, I should say, what's next? You've just released your book, Crypto Sovereignty, this year. Uh, Next book coming up. Any other plans? Uh, yeah, it's kind of funny because just from dialogues that I've been having, uh, like sort of a second book has sort of naturally come out of that. Uh, and it's going to be like, uh, uh, who, like, who knows how long it'll take, first of all, but it's really sort of focused on like the history, uh, the philology and etymology of like the various isms. So like Marxism, socialism, anarchism, fascism to sort of disentangle all of these because these terms have been so thoroughly abused that like nobody really understands them uh, from a core perspective. And I want to explain all of these because in my opinion, Bitcoin engages in a Hegelian synthesis of all of these various political theories to create a new one. Um, and so like being able to adequately parse it all out to explain all the various aspects that Bitcoin's appropriating for itself to make a new political theory I can essentially then have the second part of the book being like, okay, now that we can see how all these political theories operate, what's Bitcoin synth- synthesis doing, and what is sort of this new module of uh, politics that Bitcoin seems to implement. 
so that's sort of what I'm working on. Uh, I'll continue to do podcasting and stuff. Uh, I'm probably going to take crypto sovereignty and, and make my own podcast. That'll probably take like a year to do, but it's just going to essentially be me doing readings of various chapters of crypto sovereignty with different guests who have like read it. Cause I just really want to have like a deep and robust philosophical discussion about a lot of the topics that I'm kind of striking on and using that to create sort of a, a robust base to have this larger ongoing philosophical dialogue. Cause to me that, that that's the really important and juicy stuff that I love and enjoy. So the fact that I get to participate and help create these dialogues is really fun and exciting for me. Yeah. Now that's uh, certainly lots to look forward to there, Eric. I, I, I'll leave you with one last thing, uh, which uh, when you were talking about the Hegelian dialectic in the context of Bitcoin, I've been thinking about it in, in the context of Bitcoin culture and co the culture more broadly, which is I don't think where postmodernism has happened yet. Right. If classicalism was the thesis, uh, then uh, modernism was the antithesis. And I think postmodernism will be the synthesis. And we're not there yet. Or maybe if we are, it's just about beginning. And maybe the Renaissance 2.0 that Bitcoin potentially ushers in could be the beginning of postmodernism. I, I would agree with that. I think uh, the sort of postmodernist perspective we've been given as inaccurate and i would almost call it like inverted liberalism or something but yeah like true postmodernism i think will actually have this full synthesis that i think uh ties pretty well in line to part of my thesis which essentially is taking these radicalized perspectives of all of the sort of political theories and allowing for that synthesis to create the truth that is postmodernism that like has stuff that like the most powerful political entity in that postmodern sort of liberal order is actually going to be like a non being like a digitized cryptographic signature. And yeah, it serves for like a pretty weird and interesting environment, but I think it's very exciting. And I think in that postmodernism, you also get like lots of really crazy and wacky, uh, truly sort of anti-theatical ideas that are actually sort of amazing because of the way that they present themselves in these almost goofy ways. So, yeah, I think it's very exciting to, to see the potential of what's really happening. Yeah. And that is a good note to end this on a positive note, not certainly not stark by any means, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I, I have a tendency to go that direction. So, all right. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, and, uh, well, I'm sure I'll see you at the, at a conference next year, uh, very soon.